0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Project Next. My name's Finn Blake and I'm bringing to light success stories to empower the next generation. I'm extremely excited for episode nine. I'm going to be talking to the managing partner of McKinsey and Company in Australia and New Zealand, Angus Dawson. In this episode, Angus tells me all about what life is like at the helm of one of the world's top corporate firms. From business analyst to managing partner, Angus shares plenty of learning experiences from throughout his entire journey. Angus also gives a great deal of insight into interviewing with the firm, how to approach complex problem solving and the trends that will shape the future of management consulting. If you're looking to explore a career in consulting or strategy, then this episode is the one for you. If you're a fan of this episode, don't forget to hit that five star button below and leave us a review. This episode is one of my favorites so far. So without further ado, let's get straight into it. Angus Dawson, the managing partner of McKinsey & Company in Australia and New Zealand. Thank you so much for joining me, Angus. I'm really looking forward to the chat.
1: Thanks for having me, Finn.
0: So, Angus, I'd love to go back to the start of your journey when you were um, sort of growing up and at home with your family. Um, do you remember having any idea about what you actually wanted to do for your career?
1: I, I was someone who was always pretty interested in, in business. Uh, my mum my was an entrepreneur. She yeah. uh, she founded a business uh, renting out bicycles in Centennial Park in Sydney uh, back in the 70s, and I used to work there as a, as a kid an eight-year- old standing on the milk crate operating the cash register and riding the bikes around the block to put them away. Um, and my dad was a uh, was a business executive um, he, uh, and, and and I loved hearing about kind of what he was up to. I loved going out to the factories and checking it out. So I think I always had a bit of a love for for, for business, yeah.
0: For myself, I know that it was a challenging time for me, you know, leaving high school. And I think a lot of students go through a bit of a struggle when they're, you know, leaving school and trying to think of what they want to do beyond their year 12 studies. Um, Do you remember much about what went into your decision to, you know, go to the University of Sydney and do a Bachelor of Laws and Economics?
1: Look, I, I, I spoke to lots of people and, you know, I probably landed on economics and law, I don't know, almost as a default, because it, it was you know, a great foundation, I thought, for uh, doing something in business and would give me lots of options. Um, you know, I, I, I did that, I think, always expecting that I would never be a lawyer. Um, and, um, but, but yeah, it was, it was very much around kind of foundations and I decided to major in accounting and economics I think someone had said to me, you know, major in accounting, so you're never at the mercy of the accountants and do law, so you're never at the mercy of the lawyers. <laughs> uh, it was it was probably later that I kind of reflected that I probably missed a bit of a trick on, uh, you know, technology and engineering and those sorts of things, which I sort of, you know, went, came back to
0: later. It's interesting you say that, that you didn't necessarily want to do law, but you wanted to study it. Um, there is a lot of discussion at the moment about whether you, know, you should go into doing a law degree if you don't necessarily want to practice because some people... I know the former Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull, has said that um, he, he thinks it's a, a silly idea to go in and, and do that if you don't think about practising beyond your degree. So what is your take on that at the moment and do you think it is still, there is still merit in uh, going back and doing a, a lawyer's degree?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I still probably think what I thought back then, which is laws such a foundation of, you know, modern society, whether it's, you know, understanding kind of the historical foundations of law, um, you know, the importance of the rule of law, the importance of the legislative process, the constitution, uh, uh, as well as sort of the more kind of drier parts of the law around, you know, regulation of business and securities market law and corporations or tax law and things like that. Uh, I, I've actually found it's, uh, it's been a really useful thing to understand and a really useful foundation. So um, no, I, I, I don't regret it at all, actually. And I loved studying it, actually. I, 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 I don't think I would have loved practicing it because I think it would have been a bit repetitive, uh, but I loved studying it. I thought it was fascinating.
0: And then, Angus, you joined McKinsey in 1996. Uh, tell me mm-hmm. about the decision-making process that led you to embark on a career in consulting.
1: Yeah, so you know, like yeah, you know, for any for any any of your listeners who are sort of currently into economics and law, you get you get the whole kind of recruiting season comes around, and there are those who are sort of all snapped up by internships and things like that. Um, I, I actually never never set foot inside a law firm to do an internship or an interview or an information thing or anything. So I kind of knew that I wanted to do consulting. I, I knew a few you know friends who'd sort of gone into consulting. I thought. Again, it would be a great foundation for a career in business. Here I am, 25 years later, still <laughs> building, building my foundation. Um, and I and I'd skipped all the law internships and stuff. I did an internship actually at, at a firm called Arthur Anderson, which doesn't exist anymore. It sort of went down with uh, with Enron. And I loved kind of the the work there, looking at businesses. So you know, I did a valuation of a shopping center and. Um, as it turned out, their focus was much more tax and audit. So I had the dubious distinction of being the only one of the 23 interns who didn't end up with a graduate offer because I didn't want to do tax or audit. Um, so I, I, yeah, I only interviewed for consulting firms, I knew it was what I wanted to do. And you know, I was willing to sort of go through that process. And then kind of if it didn't work, then take stock again afterwards. As it as it turned out, it, it did work. And um, yeah, you know, I joined.
0: Awesome. And so, um, Angus, I know a lot of people have a pretty blurry understanding of the role that consultants play and the the perspectives that they can bring to an organisation. Uh, from your perspective, can you explain what you know underpins the purpose of management consulting?
1: Look, the the, the main thing with with uh, consulting is why why do clients bring in outsiders to help, right? And it's because they're facing uh, particular opportunities or challenges where. Um, yeah, you know, they need either some sort of extra ideas, extra horsepower or different different way of approaching those problems. And so therefore in a period of, you know, lots of change and lots of uncertainty and lots of um, you know, problems and opportunities that in some ways are kind of once in a career for some executives, being a, a firm and being a set of people who are able to bring the experience of having done that multiple, multiple times and faced those sorts of issues actually has real value.
0: Yeah, for sure. And so two ex-McKinsey consultants have written a book, Charles Conn and Rob McLean, uh, Bulletproof Problem Solving, which I think is a great book and and I really enjoyed and got a lot out of um, reading that book. Did you always find the... Complex problem-solving element of consulting to come naturally, or did you have to, you know, leverage processes and different frameworks and things to kind of train yourself?
1: Yeah, actually, Rob uh, Rob McLean was the the office manager of uh, of uh, Australia New Zealand when I joined in in '96. There you go. That year, um, look, I, I I actually don't. I'm not a believer in this idea that sort of great problem solvers are sort of born. You know, yeah. Uh, I, I think it's problem solving, we, we refer to it as a craft. Uh, so it, it's it, it's learned through practice. Uh, it's taught through apprenticeship. Uh, so I very much kind of learned it and I practiced it hard. Uh, I loved it. I loved thinking of different ways to approach problems. Uh, and you know, so, so I think it's something that's much more of a, a set of skills that people can learn if they're willing to, to roll their sleeves up and do that.
0: I know this is probably a separate podcast, but what are the ways that, you know, young people who are wanting to get into consulting, uh, what are the ways that they can refine their complex problem solving skills that you sort of mentioned there?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the reality is what we do is when we try and hire someone, we try and hire someone who's got, you know, great smarts, but also the ability to translate those smarts into problems that they haven't necessarily encountered before, which is why we do these sort of case interviews where you're not really meant to know, know anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, in some ways, the, the, the best way to practice is not to over practice. Because, you know, we actually find often our, our analyst applicants do better than some of our MBA applicants in the case studies, because the MBA students are trying to find, well, which framework did I learn and what class and how can I really quickly sort of apply that? Whereas the undergrads, you know, tend to sort of come at it a bit more first principle. So mm-hmm. part of it is just learning how to take complex problems and well, how would I break them up? How would I disaggregate them into kind of more solvable pieces? And so, you know, the advice I give people is read the paper, take a political problem, take a sports problem, take a, a business problem as it might be and say, well, how would you really describe what that problem is? And if you had to kind of break it up into five or six pieces that you could then sort of wrestle to the ground what would those be and how might you then advance that
0: yeah yeah that's great insight um so angus for you know young people who are going to be finishing up university and want to uh find out the ways to get an edge in in consulting what do you see as the values beyond complex problem solving that are the most important to being a consultant
1: yeah the 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 thing we're looking for when we when we interview, which is which is trying to find people who are going to sort of most thrive in in uh, in, in our profession, our firm is within the problem solving. It's the it's the ability to kind of really uh, have a discomfort with, um, or sorry, not have a discomfort with being wrong, and not you know you sort of go through university and you want to do well on exams, you want to get the right mark, and you want to. Actually, what we look for when we when we interview people is the thought process and the ability to duck and weave around and go, oh, well, let me try something different, or that doesn't sound right. Or well, hang on, I said that, and, you know, now can I just go back and sort of revisit? So there's this idea that when you're solving complex problems, you've got to be able to iterate. You've got to be able to try new approaches. You've got to you've got to show that you're sort of enjoying the process rather than necessarily trying to, you know, did I get it right? You know, did I get did I get it, you know, an A or did I get a distinction in that. The, the other really important part of it is, you know, when we work as consultants, we work in teams. And I have this little sort of test that I run when I do interviews, which is, did I feel like I wanted to help the person or not that I'm interviewing? Because yep. it's a pretty good proxy for success. Because the only reason I'm at McKinsey all these years later is lots of people helped me many times. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the people who work really well in teams and we have confidence that they're going to embrace the culture of helping each other and seeking out help uh, and then there's got to be a sort of level of aspiration and drive of wanting to sort of push through barriers and make a real difference mm-hmm. it's like you know just just push through sort of you know good enough or um uh or, or have an ambition to sort of challenge and and, and continuously either make us better or make our clients better
0: and so, Angus, you touched on a couple of times there, the, the case interviews that McKinsey does. Um, can you remember your case interviews that you did when you were applying to the firm? And what, what was the experience like? So, you know what?
1: I, I, can, I think I can pretty much remember all of my case interviews you know, yep. 25, you know, 25 years ago, no, 26 years ago as I was going through the process. The funniest one was my very first one, which was not actually with McKinsey. It was with another firm. And, you know, you get this sort of question, which is a market sizing question is a classic kind of first question you get to try and see if you can just apply some common sense and come up with some quantitative estimate, bit of common sense, bit of, you know, bit of primary school maths required to do it. And it's always this thing of, you know, well, I'm going to ask you a question. I don't expect you to know the answer. And, and I just, I just been through a, um, uh, a, a very detailed analysis of a law case or in competition law case which was on the um the takeover that arnott's biscuits tried to do of the u.s subsidiary of nabisco back in the um in the 90s and as it turns out the company that my father had worked for was 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 arnott's Biscuits. so i knew i knew that industry and the the interviewer said, okay i want you to size the australian biscuit market and I, and I thought for a moment, I was on like, you know, hidden camera or something. And I said to him, are you serious? And he said, yeah. And he said, don't worry, you're not expect to know the answer. And I said, <laughs> I can't remember what the exact number was, but I said, well, it's $760 million.
0: Yeah. Without even said, flinching. And he
1: said, what? So yeah, we had a bit of a laugh about it. And I said, look, I, you know, I've, I've analysed this market every which way, you know, for doing this law case. And so I can tell you by state, by channel, however you like. So he said, well, if you didn't know, how would you have worked it out? <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I can remember them. What, what I really remember actually is that is that the through the interviews, I actually had no idea if I was doing well or not. You know, the, where I got offers and didn't get offers and stuff to me was a complete random walk in terms of how I thought I'd gone. Um, but I really enjoyed it. Like I really enjoyed the case studies and, and I really liked the people I met at McKinsey and, you know, all the folks at other firms had, had sort of told me that, you know, the McKinsey people I was going to meet were all going to be up themselves. And, uh, but I actually had a completely different experience. And so when it came down to making a choice, I kind of just went with, you know, I was definitely attracted to the brand, you know, and, uh, you know, some, one one. One person I'd spoken to said, you know, it would be a very brave call to turn down a McKinsey offer, but I was willing to do it because I didn't want to do that for a brand or anything. And then someone just said to me, just pick the people you want to spend your time working with. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was in the end where I sort of ended up choosing McKinsey.
0: That makes sense. And so your first couple of years at McKinsey Angus, you did a few years and then jetted off uh, overseas to do your study. But what were the biggest learning experiences that you took out of those first couple of years at the firm? yeah I think the
1: there's probably i mean there's heaps but let, let me see if I can boil it down to sort of to, to three right which is the first thing I, re- I really learned how to structure and communicate my thinking um, and you know I re- remember the first the first time I sort of had to write something at McKinsey, um yeah you know, I was a good writer you know, I was sort of you know history essays, and English essays, five years of law and you know and I wrote I wrote this sort of memo that, that I've been asked to write and my my project manager, engagement right. managers as we call them, kind of sat down and he said to me, he said, Look, I wanna give you a bit of feedback on the the thing you wrote. And I sort of was ready for him to say it was just <laughs> one of the greatest things I've ever seen and it was and he said um, he said it needs a fair bit of rework. And I, I looked at him, I honestly thought he was joking, because to me, it was just, oh, I was a great writer, you know, what, what could this, be? and he pulls it out and it's a sea of red. Oh, no. And, and I, I just, I still remember my kind of heart dropping and the sort of heat going up my face. And, yeah. the, and I realized, actually, the learning was, I, I'd i spent so long writing to impress you know, with sort of university and sort of, you know, every every essay had to have a paradoxically and ironically or sort of some comp, you know, complex clause in it or something. And actually what I needed to relearn how to do was to to write, to communicate just as clearly as possible, mm-hmm. to make it as simple and clear as possible, which, you know, then of course you have to sort of fend off all the jargon that comes in in business and in, in management and stuff. But, but that was a really big first lesson of how do I just structure and organize and communicate in a way that's just very straightforward and and simple and clear rather than to impress. Um, The second big learning was to to learn how to get help actually Um, you know you sort of come into these environments and you think well I've got to prove myself and I've got to show I know what I'm doing and and actually in an environment like McKinsey we, we call it apprenticeship for a reason right an apprentice electrician or apprentice plumber shows up on day one they don't know what they're doing that's why they're not allowed to sort of, you know, rewire the circuit board on day one, but they get, they get help. And so actually people succeed in McKinsey because they're just really good at getting help. And that was for me of like, you know, do I really sort of call this sort of partner in Stockholm to ask about this industry and teach me this industry? and But sure enough, I was meant to do that. So I pick up the phone, I call this partner, I still remember the call and, I, you know. I'm a business analyst in Sydney. I hope you don't mind me bothering you. Oh, of course. Yeah, well, how can I help you? And so I still take those calls from folks around the world now, kind of remembering that and sort of pay it forward, sort of concept of that. So the second was definitely learning how to get help. And, and the third was learning how to learn from mistakes. Uh, because again, apprenticeship culture, you, you make lots of mistakes. I made a particularly embarrassing one where yeah, you know, I sort of presented a model of a valuation model of a of a, a iconic Australian company to, the, to to Rob McLean actually at the time their managing partner, uh, and realised I'd completely forgotten to include any capital spend, <laughs> and so they were going to have all this growth without having to build a single plant. And he he very kindly pointed out that maybe I should rerun it with some capex in there, and it may lead to them not being sort of you know, having a real valuation at three times the current market cap. Uh, and it just, I, I learned how to make mistakes and actually to be okay with it. And, uh, you know, I don't, think, I don't think that was something that I was particularly good at. Um, and, you know, a b- bit of that sort of learned humility uh, on the way through.
0: And so after you cut your teeth at the firm and had all these learning experiences, uh, you actually jetted off to Stanford University to do your Masters of Management, Science and Engineering. Uh, can you tell me about this ex- experience, Angus, and the value that you got from studying abroad and and doing a postgrad?
1: Yeah, sure. So, look, this was a bit of an unusual thing thing to go do. You know, the sort of standard thing to to go and do as a sort of you know, business analyst at McKinsey was to go off and do an MBA. Um, and I I decided actually I didn't want to do an MBA because I wanted to to actually go learn some stuff that was new and different. Um, and so I, I found this degree at Stanford that was really designed for engineers to do a sort of final year, you know, one year masters. Um, I, and for me, it was, I did it over two years because I had no science or engineering fundamentals. I kind of, you know, managed to get through on my sort of, you know, high school maths and a bit of, bit of maths in sort of economics. But I hadn't done science since I was sort of 14 and 15 or whatever I was in year 10. So, but I did it because I could then sort of take the course book and choose a whole bunch of interesting subjects. And those, the subjects I mostly chose were engineering and, um, and uh, computer science uh, type subjects to, to learn. Uh, so it was a great adventure. I just got married. You know, we, we sort of had two years of sort of newlyweds in San Francisco together. It was the last year of the dot com boom uh, in 1999 and 2000, the first year of the bust. So fascinating time to be there, early days of Google, um, where you know Google was the search engine that the Stanford computer science students used, uh, and and the main thing I got out of it, frankly, was just a massive broadening of perspective. Uh, yep. And I got that both because it was a different country, it was this amazing part of the world in Silicon Valley and, and and the West Coast, but it was also by throwing myself into this field that was completely different. And I, the first sort of group work that I had to do for a a strategy course on technology based businesses. One of my sort of teammates said to me, he said, Oh, look, can you um, can you explain the table in the back of this case study? I said, well, Which table? He said, Oh, table one. Table one was a profit and loss statement. <laughs> Perfect. And I said, Yeah, I can explain table one to you. You know, accounting major and, you know, three years as a McKinsey business analyst. And the company we were looking at was Cisco, you know, and and I said to him, what's your background? He goes, well, I'm a double major in computer science, electrical engineering. I'm like, all right, I'll teach you how to read a profit and loss and a balance sheet and a cash flow, and you teach me how a router works. And we had this nice. great sort of exchange of ideas and stuff to a level of sort of real detail. So it was, uh, no, it was a fantastic experience. And it, I know sometimes people think, well, do I want to go and do further study or do I want to just keep on trucking and sort of zoom through my career? Yeah, you know, I look back on those couple of years as just a, a very, very special time.
0: And when you came back to the firm, did you approach sort of problem solving in a different manner after you'd experienced that, you know, masters um, education?
1: Yeah, I did actually. I, I, I think I think there was sort of a couple of ways that, that I approached it differently. One one was, you know, a sort of a, a way of solving problems with a sort of law training is very much a kind of a, you know, you break them down into sort of what are all the issues and you look for kind of what are the facts or the, you know, in legal sense, what are the sort of cases or legislation that might go with it. And that's very much the standard McKinsey problem solving approach, actually, that came across many years ago from a a more legal approach. Economics is very much around the interrelationship of variables and computer science to me was a completely different way of thinking about things because it was always this abstraction away from a complex problem and being able to, effectively design either an algorithm or design a program to be able to simulate it and so much more around both decomposing it or, 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 or structuring it but then also really thinking about all the feedback loops and so I became a much better sort of systems thinker from having done it and I think having those sort of three different muscles of problem solving actually really helped and the second thing for me was the just having gone deep into these sort of technical topics about which I knew really nothing uh, Yeah, I remember sitting in in a I took a freshman physics class at, at Stanford it's the hardest thing I've ever done and I was sitting there in like my mid-20s with these sort of 17 year olds sort of people who'd done kind of accelerated physics in high school sitting there going you know this is so you know so straightforward and literally my head was exploding I'd sort of Go home to my wife each day and say, "I think I now know how planes stay in the air. It's kind of cool, you know." So, so I, I, I kind of, I lost the sort of the the being intimidated by technical things.
0: I think I, so, I think I saw you um, in another publication saying that you had tried to operate on a robot or something, and you were calling your <laughs> wife every day, going, "I've got no idea how to work this thing."
1: I, it was a, it was one of my first computer science. Uh, assignments and, uh, you had to make this little robot dance. I was learning to program in C, which is sort of a bit of an old, old style programming language now. And you had to kind of create this, um, recursive algorithm in order to make the robot dance. And, uh, and I was just struggling with it. And you know, she's saying, you're going to get, make it home for dinner. And I'm like, I don't think so. I can't make my robot dance <laughs> to which she had great delight in saying, you know, maybe you're just not quite as smart as you thought you were. And I'm like, maybe, <laughs> maybe. Uh, but yeah it was look it was it was great from the sense of of yeah you know, now i 'm willing to kind of pick up the technical books and read them, and you know I did a lot of work in telecom when I came back actually and including um, you know helping the government on the whole kind of implementation of the nbN and I was okay to sort of pick up the 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 books on you know optical networking and understand kind of the difference in wavelengths and all the different technologies that were being considered and how that was going to work and I would have been too intimidated to have done that before having gone and sort of jumped in the deep end.
0: So Angus, you've been at McKinsey since the very start of your career, uh, 25 years, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of change both inside and outside of the firm. Uh, can you tell me some of the insights that you've got into the biggest shifts that you've observed internally and externally since joining the firm?
1: Yeah, thanks, Finn. It's a, it's a really interesting question. The, the um... I'll, I'll start. I'll start in a slightly different place, which is what hasn't changed. Uh, and and to me, kind of you know, when I sort of reflect back on you know, almost a hundred years for McKinsey of our, of our history, what hasn't changed is this mission of making a real difference for our clients and being a, a place where we call it sort of exceptional people want to want to stay to thrive, right? Uh, and then our values, which is, you know, kind of do the right thing and put our clients interests ahead of our own in order to um, to really sort of build build trust and enduring relationships over time. But what has changed is context. Right? So what are those kind of most important issues or opportunities or challenges that our clients need help with? You know, you know, 25 years ago, it was much more around dealing with globalization. Uh, now it's much more dealing with technology and disruption, right? And whether that's a strategic question where sort of the fundamentals of an industry are really being shaken free, uh, or whether or not it's, um, you know, thinking about their own sort of, you know, choices they need to make in terms of of their own capabilities, whether it's rethinking the whole way the organisation operates uh, to be much more like a sort of startups at scale, you know, agile at scale, as well as then kind of other huge shifts and trends that are happening with, for example, the sort of net zero transition probably being the biggest disruption that we're going to face over the next um, next 30 years with a lot to happen in the next five to 10. Uh, for Australia, by the way, it's a huge opportunity as well. Uh, huge opportunity. And you, uh, it, you can see sort of some of the sort of announcements starting to come out around hydrogen and things like that. So that that context means that we are I think increasingly doing some of the more profound strategy work that in some ways uh, was was sort of the classic McKinsey work kind of 20 30 years ago but also we're doing a lot more work with clients as what we would call being the impact partner not just the insight partner mm-hmm. right yeah. where actually the advice of what to do is is only useful to the extent you can actually help execute it uh, and so for McKinsey we we have a lot more deeper longer term relationships now with our clients to really sort of help them make some of these uh, some of these transitions.
0: Now Angus some or most I should say consultants that I speak to can recall their favorite projects with ease uh, what are the favorite what are your favorite types of work to be on and what can you recall some of your favorite projects that you've worked on?
1: Yeah, look, the thing the thing I've always loved most from a sort of intellectual standpoint in terms of of consulting is just sort of getting under the hood of of an industry or a company understanding what really makes it tick. Uh, We we use in our in our strategy um, materials, we always sort of put up this picture of Roger Federer. And we say, well, why does Roger Federer make so much money? Uh, Let's just use a really sort of crass sort of version of it. And and people kind of start talking about why he does. And then we, 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 I think it's probably a pretty bad copyright violation, but we take Federer's head and we pop it on a badminton player and we go, okay, now how much, how, how well does Federer do now? And everyone's like, oh, we probably won't do as well because badminton's not as popular. And, and it's like these sorts of questions of, well, why, why does a particular company outperform another company or why does an industry outperform another industry and getting down to the real, Sort of you know details of it, and i you know I, f- I find pretty much any industry and any company just an intriguing puzzle to sort of try and solve,
0: Angus, I think it's really easy to get sort of sucked into the long preserved narrative that you know McKinsey does the boring and corporate work. Uh, what would you say in response to that, and what kind of opportunities exist within the firm that you know most people wouldn't expect
1: yeah of course you can't you can't let me sort of let that question slide really, can you. Because <laughs> I actually don't think we do any boring work. One of the, uh, well, it sounds one, like one, it. Of the, one of the fantastic things we get to do is actually that our clients only bring us in on their most interesting challenges. Uh, and so yeah, in, in a way the kind of very decision to engage someone like McKinsey is already filtered out anything that might be boring. And if it's, if it's boring, it probably means they don't need us to do it and we, we won't take on the work. So, uh, you know, the, the sort of issues that that I think big Australian companies are dealing with at the moment are fascinating. Like they're they're really, really interesting. Uh, and they are many of them are sort of new problems that these executives haven't addressed before. And they some of them are even new to world problems. Like, for example, how do you, if you're an Australian bank, get the right glide path for agriculture? No one solved it around the world. But Australia has to, because agriculture is such an important part of our net zero transition. Um, and then we, and then you know, we, we do also sort of do a whole bunch of stuff that people wouldn't necessarily associate with McKinsey. So, one of the examples was the uh, work we did with Emirates Team New Zealand, which is you know the the America's Cup team, uh, where you know it's amazing when you look at sort of the history of these boats and you know. You're, you're too young to remember, but there was this great moment in like 1983 when Australia won the America's Cup and there was this mysterious winged keel that was like this breakthrough design from a guy called Ben Lexon. Anyway, 30 years later, it's still this almost 40 years later in fact, it's it's very much a technology race. And the whole issue for boats is who can actually iterate their design fastest. And so we created this effective kind of digital twin which was a way of, of, of simulating the boat design. And we did this alongside the Emirates Team New Zealand folks, who were sort of brilliant engineers and brilliant designers. And we had this sort of moment where our kind of reinforcement learning engine actually you know, came up with something that one of the, sa- that the sailors hadn't, and these were all ex-Olympians, Olympic sailors. So we kind of referred to it a bit as the alpha go moment for our, uh, for our simulator. Uh, and, you know, I think it kind of made a, made a real difference. And so the, um, that sort of work is again, a sort of, you know, new to world complexity of a problem. Uh, and we have this term that we use, which is, you know, we should do work that frankly only McKinsey can do, Mm -hmm. uh, which, which has both a humility to it and also a bit of a sort of can have a bit of an arrogance to it, but we try and sort of get the balance right, which is let's not do things that we're not uniquely able to do, but also let's do things in a way where we think that only McKinsey can really bring together that sort of cross section of talent and capabilities to be able to get something like that to happen
0: for sure and so Angus going back to your story specifically um, I know you're very passionate I know you are very passionate about your work in philanthropy Uh, you're a supporter of champions of change initiative and a director at the Katrina Dawson Foundation Uh, can you tell me about what these initiatives mean to you
1: yeah, sure. So the Champions of Change initiative is is uh, around kind of increasing uh, gender diversity in uh, in leadership. Uh, it was started a bit over a decade ago by Liz Broderick, who was the Sex Discrimination Commissioner back then. And it was originally actually called the Male Champions of Change, uh, which was quite controversial at the time, right? Because it was, you know, there were all these sort of male CEOs who effectively said we want to do more and we want to sort of step up alongside women who've been sort of battling for sort of gender equality for a long time. Um, One of those founding CEOs was one of my clients and he called me after a few meetings and he said, well, the first meeting we all tried to sort of pretend that we knew what we were doing and sort of share our sort of progress. By the second meeting, that started to unfold. By the third meeting, we realized we really don't have the answers and we need some help. Uh, So I, I came in as effectively the advisor to them Uh, And frankly, you know, for McKinsey, we've always struggled with this issue of how do we keep fantastic women in McKinsey. So I went in also with the, I could bring up problem solving, but I certainly was willing to 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 admit right at the start that I needed the ideas as much as anyone in terms of what we wanted to do with McKinsey. So it's been a remarkable forum, actually, because what it did was it created a space where, um, you know, leaders could could be really open about the things that they were wrestling with to to, in order to drive change and there were some simple things like it started with uh, not uh, not agreeing to speak on any panels if it wasn't a gender diverse panel which now seems so obvious but a decade ago it was a sort of bit of a new new thing and then there were more radical experiments around you know flex work and uh, uh, and sort of you know how to how to actually approach domestic violence as a workplace issue and so on but look there's a long way to go the champions of change is now i think it's up to over 200 sort of ceos across sport government you know industry but we're still so far behind in terms of where we need to be on on gender rep- representation and then that's before we even get into sort of ethnic um, lgbtq diversity indigenous etc etc but ultimately we've got to get to a place in society and workplaces where you know wherever you come from and whatever your profile you feel like you can be yourself and you can thrive
0: yeah that makes sense and the Katrina Dawson Foundation yeah so
1: Katrina Katrina was my sister um uh it's obviously much much more personal um she was killed in the Martin Place siege in uh, December 2014 um and you know after that it happened and you know we were obviously all in kind of massive shock and grief but one of my my friends and he was also a client suggested that we we start a foundation in her memory and a bit of it was motivated by Martin Place at the time in Sydney was sort of blanketed with these flowers that had sort of come out um, to, to sort of remember Katrina remember Tory um, Johnson who was also killed in the siege um, and he sort of said you know you should it's going to feel weird at the moment but you should start something and he, he made a very very generous initial donation and since then, we've sort of turned it into a real foundation where we support, um, you know, girls who otherwise wouldn't be able to get to women's college at Sydney University, as well as um, through the Aurora Foundation, where we help Indigenous girls explore kind of offshore study opportunities and also high school girls through uh, through the Smith family. So, you know, it's been a way of taking something awful and turning it into something, um, you know, turning to service in a way of creating something kind of Special and honouring in uh, in her memory.
0: Absolutely, and that um, I'm sure that honour will live on. And, and congratulations on um, such an amazing initiative, Angus. I was also going to ask you. You know, in 2019, you were promoted to your position of managing partner um, for you know Australia and New Zealand. Uh, can you take me into your mind when you found out about the promotion, Angus? It had to be a pretty amazing wa- reward for effort.
1: Yeah, thanks, Vin. I mean, look, it's a it's a incredible honour and and responsibility. Um, I was actually, I was in Amsterdam when I found out we, we were at a global meeting and the global managing partner was there as well. And he asked me, could I come to uh, have a chat to him? And I knew he was either going to tell me that he wanted me to do the role or he didn't. Um, and yeah, I remember sort of sitting in my room afterwards and just sort of reflecting on the sort of huge trust that was being being placed to me in the role. I mean, it's a different kind of role than I think a lot of people Expect it's a it is a managing partner role, and it's a therefore it's very much leading from amongst the partner group, and different of our partners have different big roles in McKinsey globally, and you know these roles aren't sort of more important or more senior than than the other, but it's very much then my responsibility to sort of convene us in Australia and make sure that we're kind of heading in the right direction, um, and I had a very clear sense of some of the things that I wanted us to to do a bit differently, um, you know, to make sure we stayed as relevant as possible for our clients and to make sure that we were sort of as attractive as possible for great talent.
0: Now, Angus, to wrap up, um, I know you mentioned a little bit earlier, a couple of times that you uh, had some pretty steep learning curves when you were first joining the firm. Uh, I'm a massive proponent of the concept of either a win or a learn, it's not a win or a loss. And I've been harping on about this in my previous episodes because I think it's a great philosophy to have. Uh, what do you see as the biggest win that you've had in your time at McKinsey, and, and probably more broadly as well? Yeah, so first
1: of all, I love I love that approach of a win and a learn. I'm going to uh, I'm actually going to take that with my uh, with Good. my son, who can who can beat himself up a bit when he uh, uh, when he doesn't do as well as he wants. But um, so look as a, as a as an advisor and as a consultant, my, my wins are really the kind of wins of my clients and colleagues. Um, and so probably my the biggest win has been, uh, you know, one of my clients got a, a big role in a very, very tough context um, and has really thrived over the last few years in that role. And as a result, has had an incredible impact on his organization. And it's an organization that really matters for the country. And so, you know, you can sort of see the impact that that's had on the country. And it's just it's something that, you know, I played a small part in. And I feel great to have, to have, to have uh, been able to do that. Um, on, the, on the learn, look, there are lots early on. Uh, you know, I'll probably share one that's more recent, actually, that was, um, you know, in sort of the early days of the, of the pandemic, so sort of mid-March last year, where, you know, I'd been in the role for about a year. Uh, and, you know, I sort of, again, I sort of had clear ideas of what I wanted us to do and some of the shifts I wanted us to make. But the pandemic was not anything any of us had experienced and, you know, I remember we were sitting in this partner meeting and it was literally, you know, I think it was like March 13th or something, it was literally the the day that everything went into lockdown and this meeting was in New Zealand, literally that night that we flew out but the borders closed that night, we'd had a case scare in our office so we had to move all of our interviewing to being remote and we were talking about what we should do and we were sort of going around and sort of each person was sharing some of their views. And one of my colleagues who's quite efficient at some point said, we're way over our agenda for this particular item. You know, can, we, can we sort of adjourn this and sort of you know, get on, on to the next item? And I turned to him and I said, hey, look, you, know, you can go out and do other stuff if you want to, but I need to hear from everyone because I genuinely don't know what to do. Uh, and, and for me, who, who I think I'd always sort of prided myself on being able to know the answer and have a strong point of view as to what to do, in, in that moment, you know, just, and it wasn't that I was sort of creating space, you know, you know for, for a, for a in, in a tactical way, I really had no idea what to do. We didn't know if all consulting work would stop. We didn't know if people would get sick. We didn't know whether or not we'd be able to keep people employed. We just didn't have any idea what was going to happen um and the big learning for me was in in that moment of me just being really open that i had no idea what we were going to do first of all i got brilliant advice from everyone we actually worked out a plan and then over the next 6 months the whole way i led sort of evolved which was much more about um working through others and creating space which i already started to do but i think it was just the the real sort of boot that I needed in order to really sort of embrace that way of doing things. And so, um, you know, even at aged, whatever I was at the time, 46 or whatever, and a year into being managing partner, I was probably on my steepest learning curve ever, which is part of what I love about what I do.
0: Absolutely. Never know what's going to be around the corner. I suppose that's exactly. the that's the essence yeah. of consulting, isn't it?
1: It is. And it's also, you know, I think the idea that, you know, it, it, you sort of keep keep learning steeper and steeper as you get older and and the you know many ways many of the experiences that i had whether or not they were at university or whether they're my early days as a consultant is it's sort of learning learning how to learn and often that starts off learning how to learn more technical things or ideas or whatever and then as you get a bit older it's sort of learning how to how to learn about yourself and your own sort of leadership and your own sort of strengths and weaknesses and how to kind of manage through those, us being all sort of very imperfect, imperfect beings trying to make a difference.
0: For sure. Angus Dawson, thank you so much for taking the time this morning. I know how busy you are, so I'll let you get back to it. But um, I really appreciate your time, really appreciate the insight and and you being so candid about your journey so far.
1: Thanks very much, Finn. And uh, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you.